Welcome to Armchair Generals, a podcast about geopolitics, international relations, America's place in the world, and all things fun. I'm Andrew, and with me in the armchair, as always, is Garrett. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about Ukraine, we're going to be talking about energy policy, we're going to be talking about China, maybe the Chinese economy, if we're getting crazy with it, I'm not sure. We'll see where we get to. And as always, stay tuned for the weapon of the week. Hello, my friend. What is on your mind this afternoon? Well, you know, thinking about Ukraine and, you know, how the most interesting things this week about the Ukraine-Russian war didn't actually happen in the Ukraine. Um, Most of it seemed to be in Russia or in uh, the halls of power through Europe and the US. I mean, right off the bat, we have to talk about uh, the killing of Daria Dugina. Uh, There's, I don't know really what to say about it at this point. We've seen the Russians come out and say it was a Ukrainian security service hit that involved, I think they said a Latvian, uh, maybe an Estonian, I I forget where they said, Um, I haven't heard much about it, in terms of you think they would crow to the heavens about why it was occurring and the like. I haven't seen much, but it brings up, you know, who is Dugina? Like, and, you know, when you, when you dig into that, yes, she's kind of like a political commentator, but her father has a much bigger picture. And it's a much more important individual in a sense. Uh, sometimes he's called uh, Putin's brain and that his ideology is, He's kind of a philosopher and that his ideology drives a lot of the, the, the current Russian government's thinking. But at the same time, he I've never seen a photo of the two of them together. And I, I read an article where they've never been photographed together and they don't seem to have much personal interaction. Um, so it it's interesting. I, I don't, in my mind, it doesn't make sense for the FSB of, They're going to go after anyone to go after Alexander Dugan and by accidentally potentially kill his daughter or go after his daughter directly. It doesn't seem to make sense to me, but what are your, what are your thoughts? This assassination is very strange. I don't see the logic of either a false flag or a Ukrainian hit. Yeah. This is a second stringer political commentator whose father is the high profile character. She's a relatively minor player. She runs a website, uh, a news website in Russia that is largely pro Putin. It has shades of the apartment attack in uh, 1999, 2000, I'll have, to, I'll have to double check the year on that one, where there's suspicion that the FSB bombed civilian apartments as a false flag to justify attacks in Chechnya, Chechnya during that conflict. We know that the Russian security services do these kinds of things. This is a relatively common tool in the toolkit for the Russian security services. But such a minor player has no logic. It's possible that this car bombing 
was completely unrelated, totally coincidental, has nothing to do with Ukraine, has nothing to do with the Russian security services. Uh, perhaps this person, there's information that we don't have where this is a, just was a crime. There's just or wrong place, wrong time. Or it was to be a hit on her father, which I've heard whispers that maybe this was botched and they had intended to kill him. Alexander Dugan, as you as you know, uh, Putin's brain, sort of semi-feudal, imperial, fascist ideology is this cauldron of all of the worst ideas of history uh, packaged together with a little dash of Orthodox Christianity and sold to to the Russian public. The it's really it's it's madness. So. Yeah, I mean, that's those are my thoughts. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, and, and the timing on top of it, right? Um, kind of six-month anniversary of the war starting. We had Ukrainian Independence Day uh, from Russia, right? Um, all, all kind of happening in a very short period of time. Uh, you know, I, if I had to just pick, I would probably say I think it was more likely they were trying to kill the father, whoever it was who did this. But I, I don't actually understand the rationale for that either. Um, yes, he seems to espouse these very negative uh, kind of spheres of influence and arbitrary control over smaller neighbors that you know isn't really been in fashion but at the same time he's still kind of a a a a minor player like i I don't know how else to describe like even if they call him putin's brain he really is kind of a minor player um he's not there in the in the power you know the halls of government uh pushing this i think a lot of his work is is in his time on on the news isn't even in mainstream news media it's in kind of the orthodox Russian church controlled channels. So it's an interesting, it's just another thing that like, hopefully we find out what the real story here is. I have a feeling given Russia, we may never know. This could just be an internal conflict. Um, you know, I know at times Alexander Dugan was, was critical of the Russian government for not going far enough. It was critical of the initial invasion in Ukraine and didn't feel um, enough steps were taken to basically seize Ukraine originally. And that, um, you know, there was push for, in essence, full military intervention in the Donbass originally when, when there were the quote unquote uprisings. So the timing of the Russian decision to increase the size of their standing army, obviously, you know, done as a, a, a as a response to the fact that they don't have a ton of troops to send to the Ukraine unless they do a general mobilization. Um, maybe they're coincidental. Maybe it's part of the thought process, kind of priming the population. I don't know. It seems as though we probably won't ever get a good answer. It could just be an instance of these these people had become an inconvenience to the to the Putin government, 
and they were to be quietly eliminated, it does strike me as unusual that they weren't louder about the whole thing if it was to be a false flag operation used for propaganda value as well as the elimination of this problematic person. So perhaps it wasn't the Russian government at all. The increase of their their army size, you would think that that if this were to be used as propaganda, that that would be a perfect opportunity for the propaganda. In addition to these kind of internal uncertainties and car bombings that are killing, you know, philosophers, children, and and highly conservative uh, video presenters, Russia's looking to increase the size of their army. I mean, just on a military, tactical, strategic front, they need more bodies and they need more people to take over in Ukraine. And so not surprising that we've seen the Russian government push uh, push forward to increase the size of their army by over 100,000. This has been the consistent theme of this conflict, starting from nearly the beginning, was the unexpected level of casualties and material losses that became unsustainable to the Russian military early on and has continued. And obviously, combat in the east of Ukraine continues to grind away at forces, both Russian forces, local forces, and contract forces. It's not surprising that the Russian government is looking to pull any lever they can short of a general mobilization of the entire population to fill their vacant ranks with conscript soldiers, professional soldiers, anybody they can get their hands on, because they will need that manpower to continue their offensive operations uh, throughout Ukraine. Absolutely. And the question I have to myself is, where are they going to get these people? They're already having problems. Uh, they're they're pushing in villages throughout the country, uh, kind of very lucrative pay packages and signing bonuses <clears throat> for forces to go for people to sign up uh, and go fight in Ukraine. If that's not working, the only other lever that to me makes sense, if you're going to source from the same pool of people, is increasing conscription. And I don't know how useful that is. Um, Obviously, those aren't trained soldiers. So anything they do is over a longer term. But it really makes me wonder, you know, the, the modernization of the armed forces in Russia, supposedly moving to these contract soldiers, these professional soldiers, it seems like they've used most of them up in the Ukraine already. And if you're, if we were to believe the estimates that we've seen, somewhere between 40 and 70,000 casualties, that's very significant. And I think just from a doctrine standpoint, that means there's a lot of units that are near or if not uh, combat incapable at this point. I think you're probably right. The decree that the Putin government issued called for an additional 137,000 military personnel, which would bring the nominal force strength of the Russian army from about a million to about 
1,150,000 beginning on January 1st, 2023. What this says to me is that this is combat loss replenishment, that the standing army, the forces in Ukraine have been so chewed up and that they will not significantly increase combat power in theater to sustain operations in Ukraine. It's very enlightening as to how serious losses have been in Ukraine that the Russian army, the Russian government is taking this step. 150,000 people is a, is a lot of people to try and drum up um, in four months to fill, you know, vacant army ranks. The nominal strength of a million men was actually probably more like 850,000 active duty military personnel at the start of 2022. So it's likely that this 150,000 is actually not even going to bring them to a million men because it's likely they've lost more than 50,000 men in combat in Ukraine to date. And I think you raise a really interesting question. Where do these people come from? This is probably only the beginning of additional coercive policies to increase the size of the Russian military to to fill these casualties. Yes, these people are coming from all over, but it's not St. Petersburg. It's not Moscow. Uh, and And the folks who are going, a lot of them aren't ethnic Russians. So you're getting a lot of non-ethnic Russians going to fight this war for, for, you know, in essence, this idea of the Slavic people, this concept that you have to, you know, we're, we are one big country and a little country together. It's an interesting uh, idea. I mean, I, I wonder, I don't know Russia well enough to understand the internal politics of if does that matter? Just like here in the U.S., when when people fight wars um, in more modern times, where it's not the same cross segment of society that's physically going to war that it used to be, does that? How does that play out? And you know, I think it's important to point out that they want to raise over a hundred thousand, over one hundred thirty. That was the size of the standing Ukrainian army. So they're they're trying to raise, in essence. The, a force the size of the standing Ukrainian army before the war started. I think you're going to see, they're going to have a real hard time filling that. I wonder at some point, do they have to mobilize? Do the Russians have to mobilize? Uh, you can only pay so many contract soldiers. And I mean, non, non-Russian military, like Wagner group, Chechens who are coming in and fight, like you can only do that for so long because the attrition will burn through those pools of people. Uh, and at the same time, we're having that, you're having the mass mobil, the complete mass mobilization of the Ukrainian people. So all 44 million are, you know, the majority are behind fighting this war. And you have men who, between the age, I think it was 18 and 65, are not allowed to leave the country. So you, and we've touched on this on previous episodes, 
I wonder how many men are going through training under arms. I know there are folks, Ukrainians in, in the UK. I've read that the US was considering basically training some battalions uh, and sending them back. And I believe there's probably more of this going on in elsewhere in Western Europe. But I'm sure in the Ukraine, there is a mass mobilization occurring. And at some point, they're going to come out and say, yes, we have a half million men under arms now. Or, you know, I know their stated goal is 1 million. And it seems like you could do that if you have Western support and they continue to finance your government. But it's it's going to be interesting. I mean, you very well may be forced, Russia may be forced to send conscripts just into Ukraine, just to hold the territory they currently have. And I wonder how that's going to go. Well, if that if it comes to that, it will not go well for Vladimir Putin. That kind of action could lead to a lot of discontent with the Russian public, who's been told that this isn't even a war, a special military operation. So what kind of special military operation would require general mobilization? Or sending conscripts in to to fight. That seems like a bridge too far. I suspect this will end up as some sort of frozen conflict. That is the the goal now probably being discussed in the Kremlin. I know that the Russian Ministry of Defense has been suggesting that their maximalist goals of overthrowing the government in Ukraine still are floating around, still may be the the stated goal. But I don't I don't see sitting here now looking at what's happening, how that's possible. Tactically, a marginally better position for Russian and the Russian-backed separatists strategically huge defeat. What will Russia be able to sustain just economically? And the resources they're pulling out of the Donbass aren't going to pay for it. You can't pull enough coal out of the Donbass to pay for this war. It's just that's not going to happen. Yeah, that's certainly true. You, you not only are handing out Russian passports left and right, you now, to, to maintain this relationship you have with these areas you've taken, you have to provide all their government services. The longer this goes on, I think the more partisans there will be in Ukrainians' favor. I think the idea that folks potentially had in the Donbass, hey, you know, I feel more aligned with Russia. Hey, if you come here and you now are in charge, I'll, I'm not going to fight you for it. That's very different than all the export markets I had, I'm cut off from. I can't get my grain or you know coal to to market. Uh, our infrastructure is repeatedly you know bombed, and now you've conscripted a lot of us to go fight in a you know, territorial army for you, and a lot of us are dying. Yeah, it is a quagmire. It's the quaggiest quagmire that ever quagged and mired. It's the it's you know arguably worse than Afghanistan. Certainly worse than the Soviet experience in Afghanistan. Maybe not as bad as our experiences in Afghanistan, but you know we're a much wealthier country. So that being said, um, what is in the latest aid package? 
that we're sending to our Ukrainian friends as as they continue to face down the Russian bear. Yeah, the, you know this is interesting. I'm sure so. You know the size of this aid package, three billion dollars, significantly larger than what we've seen uh, in in the last several aid packages that were all under a billion. But what really stood out to me is this isn't a ton of new equipment or anything like that. It's long-term contracts really for maintenance, repair, and uh, replenishment. So I think a lot, you know, timing, it was a political statement timed with the Ukrainian Independence Day to say, we're in this for the long haul, and probably also to show our European partners we're not just giving them weapons today. We're putting money aside for things they're going to need over the year to come. Yeah, it's really interesting. It does suggest a long-term commitment to Ukraine, which is good. You know, and then this really ties into kind of the wider political view and what we're seeing from in the capitals around Western Europe, in North America is is intriguing people seem to be hunkering down and bunkering down for for the long haul here and russia may have thought that we were going to fragment as as kind of an alliance and there's some dithering but it seems like germany is out there talking about rationing other parts of europe are are speaking now about how hard it's going to get like this is going to get hard the head the head of nato is saying like, this isn't gonna be easy. There's gonna be prices to be paid and we are willing to pay them because the alternative is gonna cost more in the long run. Old Jens Stoltenberg, yes? Yes. Old Jens. Exactly, and I, I think that that puts it, it's very relatable. You know, the, you know, the timing is pretty horrendous for the Germans. They actively shut down their nuclear reactors. So they only have three open and they, you know, the, the Greens, I think, in, in consultation with the rest of the government, realized it didn't make a ton of sense to keep those open, considering they're only providing something like 2% of energy supply, electrical supply. So there wasn't really any benefit. But I, I foresee if we get through the, if they can get through this winter and everyone holds, holds the line, next year is going to look as bad as it is today for Russia, next year is going to look a lot worse. Because at that point, you'll be every day you're closer to finding alternative supplies of, of energy for Europe. And those supplies aren't coming from Russia. Those supplies are coming from Azerbaijan. Those supplies are coming from facilities that are getting set up in North America to export liquefied natural gas. It's just a matter of time and resources and this problem will be solved. And the only loser in the long run is going to be Russia, who is going to be locked out of the markets they've historically dominated and forced into markets where they're going to be seen as a junior partner. And I and I have to sell their resources at a discount. Yeah, that's, I think, exactly right. They are going to be, become a junior partner to the Chinese is the most logical um, market for them to try to access. Forgive my ignorance on this topic, but the 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 natural gas is is all used in power generation, 
Is that right? It's not it's not used directly to heat homes like maybe we we have heating oil delivery in some parts of the northern northern US where you actually have a you have a, a heating oil delivery and you heat your home with with uh some petroleum product diesel I guess I don't know. I never I electric heat but uh but yeah so it's all it's not direct in-home heating it's it's electrical um it's electricity the supply of electricity is it I I think it's both I think uh the the, the natural gas is utilized just like you would burn gas on your stove. And so I think depending on how your home is set up, you could either have electrical heating or natural gas heating. Um, but it's also used, uh, you know, at an industrial level. And the longer the conflict goes on, the safer and safer the bet to invest in LNG terminals becomes in Europe. So you know, if it were, if it was going to be six weeks and then it was going to be resolved or a week and then it was going to be resolved, obviously no one in any capital in Europe would say we need to build LNG terminals so that we can buy American natural gas and get it into our markets. But six months on, no end in sight, Russian government still obviously pursuing a maximalist policy in Ukraine, that bet looks safer that, you know, if it takes a year or two years or five years to build an LNG terminal, let's make that investment now so that we're never held hostage again. That bet looks safer today than it did in February. This is going to spur, I believe, decarbonization in Europe faster than it would have otherwise because they don't want they they don't want to be beholden to Russia. And they already want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So this is two birds, one stone, probably for many. Absolutely. And I've seen some commentary that I think I think the Germans and the Canadians set up just recently set up a partnership to import to Germany uh, green hydrogen. Uh, there's a question of how green that really is, but it's uh, just another example of anytime the prices get high for energy the alternatives make a more compelling case. Uh, the business case is easier to make when prices are high than when prices are low because the incremental investment cost is not as, not as um, daunting. We talk about Ukraine, Russia, kind of the involvement of the West, but I think it's important to remember this is this war is only existential to a few parties. Putin personally, I think he can't lose, can't be seen to lose. He cannot be seen to be wrong. They put too much energy into this policy, this thought process. But it's really pulling down their economy and, and hampering their ability really to function, I think, at times. But what are you, what are your thoughts on this? I know you've looked into this subject in great detail. I have been keeping an eye ever since Evergrande first. Uh, you brought Evergrande up to me several months ago. They're one of the largest property developers in the country, and they were they were incredibly leveraged. Um. And that she introduced the three red lines in the property sector, which basically 
caused an implosion because they could no longer easily finance their projects they could because they couldn't get any more debt because of these new policies and that precipitated this this basically wholesale collapse of this major property developer and i think really gave a window into the extreme leveraging of the whole sector which represents something like 30% of the gdp of the whole country so on the one hand that sounds very bad but on the other hand it might be too big to fail literally in in china and there a lot of this debt is held by state banks perhaps these state banks just wipe quietly wipe that debt off the balance sheets and it just fizzles out and disappears i'm not an economist but it's probably politically untenable for there to be a major collapse in the, the chinese property market but on top of this this contagion in the property market which has not gone away i am still hearing about other second and third tier property developers who are also in distress who are getting bailouts and you know people refusing to pay their mortgages on properties that have that are unfinished is is going on throughout in these second and third tier cities so on top of all of that you also have an ongoing covid crisis and as a result of that ongoing covid crisis you have an economy that's shifting from a uh, industrial producing economy a resource based economy to a service based economy where this the continued zero covid policy is strangling uh, consumer demand and dampening consumer sentiment so no one's going out no one's spending money no one's buying anything so you have these two structural policy issues dragging the chinese economy down to the point where the the state council reduced the gdp growth outlook from 5.5% to 2.5% annualized growth which is remarkable that is effectively for china a recession and moreover xi is particularly ill suited to manage this sort of economic crisis he is by nature more command economy oriented he is distrustful of the market and he's distrustful of market based reforms probably all of which are necessary levers to maintain a stable chinese economy if the chinese economy begins to worsen i think this becomes very very dangerous from a geopolitical standpoint i i agree with you 100% i <clears throat> taking the economics out of it as we discussed earlier autocrats dictators they can't be wrong they can't be seen to be wrong here he can't back down from zero covid before he gets his unprecedented third term and what does that mean well in the way that government is set up that means all the local party officials are pushing as hard as they can on zero covid i've seen some kind of ridiculous versions of it i think the the Chinese national uh, volleyball team wore N95 masks during their most recent game, or at least part of it. I saw that. And so this outward expression of zero COVID just becomes crazy. 
they're using they're using drones to to make sure that uh, people scan their COVID pass passport uh, when they're going into an when they're going into a building. They're literally surveilling people to make sure they're in full compliance with all these zero COVID measures. It's really remarkable. And you speak, you know, moving from a manufacturing economy to something that is more more uh, professional and more focused on um, intellectual goods and, and, and internal consumption, in all honesty. You can't do that when everyone's stuck at home. And I know the vaccination rates in mainland China are much lower than the equivalent rates in the West. And the vaccines they used were didn't have as high of efficacy. But what I haven't seen is data showing that their hospitals are filling up. And in the West, that was kind of the, the, the pressure valve for us. If the hospitals were filling up, restrict movement, decrease the transmission rate. When they aren't, things continue to be to open up because the actual risk of COVID itself seems to be more mitigated. In China, they've taken a G and the government has taken the position that the enemy isn't the effects of COVID and the fact that it may hospitalize and kill people. The enemy is someone getting COVID at all. The concept of COVID. Which foreign. Yeah, which is it's impossible. It's an impossible standard when a disease has become endemic as COVID has. It's everywhere. It will be everywhere forever. It's unsustainable. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, to put it into terms that we think about, it would be as if we criminalized the flu. That is the same. It's the same approach. And in the backdrop, you add to it in some areas, uh, people's homes that they put their down payments on aren't getting built. Right. People are refusing to pay their mortgage. They have an economy that's slowing down. I think I think unemployment for, for youth, as you mentioned, is 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 down or is up. It's all time high. All time high. Not like 19% youth unemployment. Yeah. And you know, I just as an example of the ramifications for external parties, uh, I believe Apple is looking to make their next iPhone in India. And so when they when this happens, your your foreign partners start to think you are not reliable. You know, beyond the geopolitical issues and and concerns around intellectual property, there, if you cannot keep your factories open, people aren't going to put factories there. China, China is an interesting case because it has been a world power throughout its history. Many at many different stages, it was it was a global power, and at some points, an unrivaled global power. So, it goes through these cycles of opening up and then closing to the world, which is a a peculiar quirk, I think, of Chinese society. In the in the same sense that Russian society is predicated on. A tension between expansion and collapse, 
Chinese society is, I think, predicated historically on a tension between opening up to the world and self-isolation. So are we at a turning point now where Xi is cutting China off from the world? As you say, Apple is looking to potentially relocate production to India. And as the Chinese economy matures and becomes more services focused and less manufacturing focused, it's natural for those market forces to drive large large international companies to seek the place where they can get the best the best deal for labor and as the chinese economy matures it won't be china anymore and xi is implicitly or explicitly defining himself in opposition to deng xiaoping who opened china to the world and set the stage for this incredible economic renaissance and it feels increasingly like policies like zero COVID, policies like reducing um, access to foreign capital, where we're not going to let foreign investment come in to Chinese companies. They voluntarily delisted four major Chinese companies from the New York Stock Exchange this week. So is this leading us somewhere? Or or not, because it, I, I, while I'm not an expert on by any means, it seems as though China has not reached an inflection point where they're so powerful, they can't be ignored. You know, will the West simply, will the rest of the world simply get along with more limited access to the Chinese market? And will they similarly limit access from China to their markets? Are we seeing an uh, an end or a reduction in globalization? These are all interesting and outstanding questions. And it's, <clears throat> the one thing I would add is anytime there's strife or change, political leaders tend to look for a scapegoat or a release valve. And I think the the pressure cooker is is on high right now in China. And nationalism and outward manifestations of that are, I think, pretty clearly the way the government has been pushing the population for a while. And so I wonder if we will see more drills around Taiwan, a more robust and uh, assertive approach in the South China Sea. And then you have you have Japan, you have South Korea. Um, I don't think either of those countries have great uh, relationships right now with with China. You know, Australia is going through uh, and New Zealand. It seems to be they're going through a um, really a defense review in a sense, where they're trying to figure out where are they going to fit? going forward. Um, Australia, obviously going to house uh, and station uh, nuclear submarines. What other what other things are going to happen is, you know, and we haven't even touched on the extreme drought that's going on in China right now, where it's threatening not only crops, but power generation throughout the country. 
which is really remarkable, the sort of drought that in years gone by and not that many years gone by, we would be talking about a deadly famine that would kill, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And so, you know, this is sort of a perfect storm, it seems, for Chinese leadership where they're facing sort of severe economic crises, one one of which is policy generated through, through the zero COVID. COVID itself continues to be a crisis apart from its economic impacts. There's an ongoing environmental crisis in the form of a major drought. Are interacting in a way that is a really unpredictable mess. I I don't foresee it being a, a good rest of the year, or maybe even a 2023 for the Chinese Communist Party and maybe the world. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us today in the armchair. I'm Garrett. For Andrew and I, thanks for listening.